Well, let's um, let's take just a couple of weeks off from Second um, Corinthians, and we're going to move to Matthew's Gospel. So, if you'd take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter one, <coughs> we're going to read uh, verses eighteen to twenty-five in the first uh, seventeen verses. Uh, Matthew uh, gives an account of the lineage of Jesus through his, uh, through Joseph, who was Jesus' legal father. And that's the first 17 verses. And in that, you find that um, Joseph comes from the tribe of David, right? Or from, from the lineage of David, out of the tribe of Jude, excuse me. And uh, these are the verses that follow that, and that's what we're going to read. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inerrant word. There is a question that's asked later on in Matthew's gospel uh, by Jesus to the Pharisees. He asks this question. He says, he asks, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answered, well, he's the son of David. Jesus then asks them a follow-up question. He asks, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And in that question, Jesus pointed them to the way the Old Testament taught that Christ, that the Christ would also be divine. And yet that was something that many of the Jews in Jesus' day simply could not believe. The Pharisees didn't teach it. The Sadducees didn't believe it. Most of the people didn't see it that way. In a way, the whole gospel of Matthew is centered around these three questions. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And how is it that David calls him Lord? Matthew actually started answering these questions as soon as he opened up his gospel where he tells of the lineage of Jesus Christ according to Joseph, who, Jesus ra- who raised Jesus as his legal son. In one sense, that tells us the answer to one of those questions. He is the son of David. And in our verses today, we are beholding the plan of God from times of old as, as he fulfills in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ the promises that he made so long ago. And the answer that we see is just incredible, isn't it? Jesus is the son of God. Now, the fact that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary is 
a central tenet of Christianity. You do not have Christianity if you do not have a Christ or a Savior that isn't virgin born. And yet many today that are considered under the umbrella of Christendom not only do not see the importance of this doctrine, but they, but they deny that it's even true. And this is the terrible impact of liberal theology on the people of our time. What is important in Christianity must be taught at all costs and it cannot be denied or else you do not have Christianity. And yet, here we are with many influential pastors who write books and have thousands of Christians listening to what they say or or reading what they pen. And they downplay the importance of the virgin birth or they deny it outright. And it's not just in liberal, so-called liberal denominations. It's within some of the Baptist denominations. And you cannot have also this utter cop-out as a preacher of God's word by saying, you know, this is something beyond my understanding and if I don't understand it, I won't teach it. That's a cop-out. And some of them do that. Nor can you have them say it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus was virgin born. I've heard that one before. Oh, it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus was virgin born. Of course it does. And the Bible is clear in its teaching uh, that Jesus was born of a virgin. And if you ignore that, you're ignoring the deity of Christ. And if you ignore the deity of Christ, it's the same as denying it. And we are not free to pick and choose which parts of God's word we want to believe and what we want to follow. That would be putting ourselves above God, and we must not do that. You see, it's the virgin birth that testifies to the fact that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Without this fact, there is no gospel. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God is a central fact of Christianity. The power of the gospel is that God became a man because the Savior couldn't merely be a man, nor could he simply be God. Only the God-man could reconcile men to God. And everything we mark as a key tenet of the gospel hinges on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Hinges on it. Here are the key elements. Here are the key tenets of the gospel. Jesus was virgin born. He lived a perfect sinless life. He suffered and died on a cross in our place as our substitute. He was buried in a tomb. He was gloriously raised from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He will come again in great power and in great glory. That's the gospel story. You cannot take any one of those tenets out of the gospel story and have a gospel. Much less take the virgin birth out of it and have the gospel. If you, do have a, if you do that, you have a Savior who cannot save. You have a gospel that won't have any power. And notice uh, the, some of the, the liberal theologians who will avoid talking about Christ's deity. But here's what they love to do is to hold to the moral teachings of Jesus. Oh, we love the moral teachings of Jesus. But if the virgin birth isn't true, and if Jesus isn't both man and God, then even his moral teachings would then be suspect because Jesus, well, he presented himself as God. And what kind of person presents himself as God? Well, C.S. Lewis helps us here, doesn't he? He said that a man that presents himself as both God and man is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's what he said. He's either a liar And no one needs to follow him because how monstrous is it to get people to believe that you're God 
He's a, or he's a lunatic, which means he's crazy. And you don't need to follow a crazy man. Or he's Lord, isn't he? He's exactly who he said he was. He is the son of the living God. And so the question for you is the same as it was for those Pharisees in Jesus' time. What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? You know, many people are willing to recognize that he is a great teacher, a man with high moral character, a man with great principles, or perhaps even a prophet. But I tell you this today, if he's not more than these things, he's not your savior. If he's not more than this, he's not your savior. He couldn't conquer our sins. A man who's just a prophet couldn't defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave, and you'll still be in your sins. But if he is who he says he is, if he's both man and God, he can do all of that and more. Let's take a moment and notice three things about the text. One, there are a lot of special births in the Bible, but Jesus is the most special of all. So first of all, we want to note the miraculous nature of the conception of Jesus. You know, you think of the, the there, are lot, there are several amazing births, aren't they? If you think of, you can just think of Abraham as one of those easy ones and, and he's 100 years old and, and Sarah almost 100 years old and, and they'd never had a child and, and God opened up their womb. But more miraculous than that is the virgin birth. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Mary and Joseph were incredible people. Not much is known about them either, but from what we know, we are told that, there's, that there is a sense of purpose upon both of their lives. Mary seems to have come from a relatively poor family. We see that she's a godly young woman who was submissive to the will of God. Luke records that she was told by the angel Gabriel that she would be the mother of the Son of God. And she said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. She blessed God. She gave thanks to him, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> for the awesome responsibility given to her. She was humble. She was reverent. She was thankful. Even less is said about Joseph. The most important feature we do know about him is that he's a righteous man. And that's what it says in the text. We know that he was betrothed to Mary, which would be something what we would uh, consider close to um, uh, engagement today, but it's actually more than engagement, but less than marriage. Um, we know that he was, uh, since he was betrothed, they, that signifies that, that this was an arranged marriage uh, between their parents. Mary could have been as young as 13 or 14 years old. The parents of the bride and groom would have uh, worked out a contract in advance, and as soon as the betrothal was announced, the man and woman, the man and woman were considered married. Although the marriage ceremony and the consummation of the marriage did not take place until perhaps a year later, so this period of time in which Mary is found to be with child is in the a betrothal, which is after they are considered legally married, but before any ceremony or sexual contact had taken place, as is made evidence by the text. Mary is a virgin, and yet she's with child. And this seems to, be, seems to be a shocking mystery here. But in point of fact, the Old Testament signified to us that this was going to be one of the features of the Christ. You can see it in the beginning with the fall of um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when God was pronouncing the curse upon the serpent. You remember what he said there, don't you? He said that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel 
of the seed of the woman, but that he would crush the seed of the woman, would crush, crush the, the, the seed of the serpent. Um, th- th- we know now that this is a reference to the virgin birth. Um, then there's Jeremiah 31, 22. And many rabbis, even though uh, sometimes it was based off of a poor translation, many rabbis have, have believed in times past and taught that the Messiah would be born without an earthly father. That was something that was taught uh, leading up to the birth of Jesus. Um, and then there's the famous scripture in Isaiah 7, 14. We all know, and it's quoted often this time of year, which says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in progressive revelation, God was promising the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Jesus' birth was miraculous in every way, and it was not made up by the followers of Jesus, and it was not a... Um, it was, it was not modeling or borrowing from, or borrowing from uh, the, um, the uh, other religions of the, of the day. This was something that was predicted in the Old Testament. Um, and let us note one more thing. Some, of, some would have you believe that the claim of the virgin birth of Jesus wasn't part of the original story, but that it came along much, much later. But that's refuted by one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. There's Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Matthew sets forth here in his gospel, Matthew does, the central claim of Christianity that Mary was found with child from the Holy Spirit is miraculous. It is what the scriptures say. It is to be believed. It is part of the Christian story. The second point we'll make is to admire the response of Joseph. Look in verse 19 and 20. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. As we've said before, we don't really know a whole lot about Joseph because there's not much more that's written about him. But this we know because what the text says, he was a righteous man. And because he's a righteous man, he happens to find himself in a dilemma here. Because of their betrothal, he is considered to be the husband of Mary. Yet the ceremony and the consummation have not taken place. And Mary's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. And so naturally, Joseph knows he shouldn't marry her. So here's what he seeks to do. Excuse me. He seeks to divorce her quietly. And from that, here's what we can gather. We gather that he's also kind and he cares for Mary and he doesn't want her publicly shamed as was commonly done by men in matters just like that. Uh, Joseph didn't want to shame her. He didn't want to make a spectacle of her. And furthermore, there was the law. There was the matter of the law in Deuteronomy 22, which says that Mary could have been stoned for being in an adulterous relationship. Joseph had no desire to shame Mary he had no desire to see her stoned. And uh, uh, it shows us that he showed no anger. He showed no bitterness toward her. And I think we can all learn something from that, can't we? This was before he found out what had happened. Uh, you imagine how devastating it would have been for him. How disappointed he would have been. 
Therefore, he desired, though, to put her away secretly because he was a righteous man. And this would afford Mary some protection for a time before everyone figured out, hey, the marriage hasn't happened. Uh, What's going on there? And while Joseph is considering all of this, an angel of the Lord comes to him in a dream to tell him independently of Mary that the child conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. We notice the important detail here that Joseph is referred to. Notice in that passage, as the son of David by the angel. It's important because even though Jesus isn't Joseph's real son, Joseph was his legal father, which gives him the royal right in the Davidic line. And by the way, Jesus also descends from Mary, uh, descends from David out of Mary's lineage as well. Mary's lineage is given to us in Luke chapter 2. And the message to Joseph is what's important here. The angel says, that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So God sent his his holy messenger to Joseph to testify that the Virgin Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. It's the testimony of Scripture. And again, we want to admire Joseph here. Even before he's visited by the angel, we see his kindness and we know why God put his only begotten son in that home. Joseph was a man that could receive the word of God and act in righteousness regarding that difficult situation. There's only a few more things about Joseph in the Bible. It seems that he was dead by the time that Jesus' public ministry began, or at least he was dead. We know he was dead by the time of the crucifixion because as Jesus is on the cross, he gives uh, his, his, uh, his uh, mother Mary, he gives her to the apostle John uh, to live with and be protected. But the character of Joseph is nonetheless remembered by all who love the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. And that's important for us to know. I read somewhere somewhere along the way that there was some story that came along somehow that talked about how Joseph was mean to Jesus and all this other stuff. They didn't like that. That is just utter nonsense and foolishness. And for some reason, people come up with things they should never come up with. No, it is clear. Joseph was a righteous man. And he was placed in that home. Jesus was because of that. And Joseph loved him. Thirdly, we see the purpose of this Uh, We see the purpose of this miraculous birth, the purpose of it. Verse 21, uh, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Joseph is given the purpose of such a wondrous and miraculous act that God has chosen to do in their lives. And that purpose is demonstrated here in the name, even in the name that they're going to give the child. He shall name him Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua or uh, Yeshua or Joshua. We have Joshua now. And this is what the name means. It means Yahweh will save. That's what the name Joshua means. And the angel tells us what, what Jesus will save his people from. We will save them from their sins. Now, there were two great figures in Israel's time in the wilderness in the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua. Moses was given the law of God, wasn't he? You know what? He didn't make it to the promised land because he died before they went into the land. Do you remember that? You know who took them into the promised land? It was Joshua, wasn't it? He led them into the promised land. And that's the name that Jesus received upon his birth. He wasn't given the name associated with the law uh, because law doesn't save anyone, does it? 
He was given the name of the man that led the Israelites into the promised land. I'll tell you today that Jesus is the greater Joshua. He is the greater Joshua. And dear friends, just as the scriptures have said that Jesus will say, have said Jesus will save his people from their sins, he will lead them into the promised land. And that promised land now is heaven. The scripture, and by the way, the scriptures do not say that he hoped to save a people from their sins. It doesn't say that if someone will give their heart to Jesus somewhere along the way, he will lead them to the promised land. The scriptures tell us unequivocally that Jesus was born for the particular purpose of saving a particular people from their sins. Jesus died to accomplish the salvation of his people. That's why when he's finished, right, what's he say? It is finished. There is to be no doubt of what Jesus was doing when he came to earth to live and die. He wasn't hoping that if once he died, that maybe there would be someone who would receive him as Savior. No, he was dying for a people, the people that his father would give him. It is a certainty, it was a certainty of what Jesus was doing when he came to earth. He was dying to save the people, his people, for himself. The angel also points Joseph and everyone else that reads scripture back to the book of Isaiah to show us that this event was foretold long ago. Now in the context of the time of Isaiah, and I don't have time to get into all that, but the text was used to show that God's people, the prophecy was in the time of Isaiah that he would not forsake them and that he would, allow, and that he would never allow any enemy to destroy the line of David which the Messiah would come from. God preserved his people in a miraculous way in the time of Isaiah, just as he promised. But that prophecy is fulfilled in greater detail in the marvelous virgin birth of Jesus. And the meaning is the same, except with greater emphasis. God will preserve his people through the virgin-born Messiah. And he would do this himself, um, which is evidenced by the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. So not only is the divinity of Jesus Christ evident in the virgin birth, Mary was with him, uh, with, with child from the Holy Spirit, but it's also his name, his name. Jesus means Yahweh will save. Emmanuel means God with us. And, and one of the themes of the Bible, and this is real helpful here for us all, is getting back to the garden or getting back to fellowship with God. God once walked with man in the garden of Eden before sin separated man and God. And after that sin, God could no longer be directly in man's presence and walk with him and talk with him in that same way. And the Old Testament is one unfolding plan of God getting back to his people he leads them up out of Egypt. He had them build a tabernacle where his presence would dwell near to them, even in their camp. Later on, the temple was built, which was a symbol of the presence of God among the people of Israel. And yet all these signs pointing to the desire of God to be among his people. There was always this distance for their own protection. And here in the virgin birth, this is fulfilled in the greatest way imaginable. God comes closer than ever before in the incarnation. And it's done by God himself putting on human flesh and literally, as John chapter one tells us, tabernacling with us. And folks, that's the wonder of the virgin birth. God came, he dwelled with man, in, as, uh, came with men, uh, he, he came and dwelled with men as man in order to reconcile us to him. And one day we will be with him fully and finally in the heaven that he has prepared for us. We'll just finish out the, the, the chapter. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name. 
Jesus. So all these things took place. Joseph obeyed, and it was his honor to do so. He would have no doubt been uh, relieved. He was able now to take his beloved Mary to be his wife without hesitation. How great his gratitude and amazement would have been. And church, we want to never lose our sense of wonder at the incarnation of our God. How amazing is his love for us that he would have condescended to us in this way and be born in a lowly manger in a little town called Bethlehem. If there's ever been any doubt that you've had about God's love for you, let there no more be any more doubt. Um, God predicted it. He fulfilled it. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So we'll ask, we'll end with this question, whose son is the Christ? He's the son of God, isn't he? He's born of a virgin, and you must believe this about him. If he's not virgin born, he's not God. And if he's not both man and God, he cannot save us from our sins. Believe on Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for the virgin-born Jesus Christ. We thank you for the text. And you think about that, that as we look at that, just it's, um, there's no great big explanation there in the passage uh, about uh, concerning des- describing the virgin birth and how that happened and, and all of that. It's just stated simply there for us. It's meant for us to see it and believe it. And I pray, Father, that each and every person here has put their faith and trust in the virgin-born Jesus Christ who suffered and died for their sins and rose the third day. May your blessing be upon each and every one of them. Uh, This Christmas time, Lord, may we remember Jesus Christ, our great Savior, all through this Christmas season as we spend time with our families, as we celebrate, as we enjoy one another. Jesus is the Son of God, born to men. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. We have a hymn of invitation. It's hymn number 108, How Great Our Joy. Don't you have great joy this morning that the Savior is yours, that Jesus is yours? Stand and sing uh, with me, How Great Our Joy.